Well, friends, I'd like to direct your attention to Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. That'll be our text this morning, Mark 12, 28 to 34. And if you're using one of the Bibles we provide in the seat in front of you, that will be either on page 797 or page 848, depending on which edition it is. So 797 or 848, Mark chapter 12. 28 to 34, I'll read our text, I'll pray for God's blessing, and go from there. And one of the scribes came up and heard them, Jesus and people he was talking with, disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Just as we sang, God, so we echo in this prayer that you would teach us, you would speak through the words that you have already spoken. But we know that your spirit continues to speak these living and active words. And we look to you, Jesus, the good shepherd of your flock, and know that you know each heart, you know each life, you know what needs to be done in each of us. You know which of us maybe need to be brought to faith for the first time, You know which of us may be struggling, uh, discouraged, doubting. You know which of us may be wandering into sin, straying from you, uh, starting to think too small a thing of sin. Uh, You know who needs to be instructed, who needs to be warned, who needs to be comforted. All the various things, the life-giving work that your spirit does in your word, we plead with you to do it in our midst. To open my mouth to speak with faithfulness and clarity, to open all of our ears, to receive your word and to be shaped into the likeness of Christ. Stir up in our hearts a response of faith, a response of delight, a response of obedience. All for your praise in our midst, God. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Whenever you're diagnosing a problem, you want to get right to the heart of the issue. You don't want to be messing around with outward symptoms. What is causing all this? What is truly going on? Now here at the church office, we've recently had some issues with our printer. And uh, Christy has had to call in tech support a few times over the past few weeks. But the problem has persisted. And during this past week, we had a guy in here, a tech in here working on it once again. And he was deep into the weeds. And he mentioned, I think I found the problem. You have some wires in the printer that have broken from years of use. And I see these broken wires. Now, when you're trying to solve a problem, 
and lacking success, what kind of news is that? I found some broken wires. Well, on the one hand, it's not great news. You'd rather the wires not be broken. But on the other hand, it is also a refreshing bit of clarity. When you hear a diagnosis like that, you go, aha, I think we may have found the problem. I think we're on to something. Fix those wires and you're likely to have the problem solved. At that moment, you realize that all the other prior attempts that other people came in and they, and they were trying to do, they've been tinkering at the edges and not getting to the problem. Now, this could be a real solution. There is great refreshment and help to be found in a clear diagnosis that gets to the heart of the issue. Even if that news is difficult, at least you're not in the dark. At least you're not stuck spinning your wheels with meaningless attempts to fix it. And in a similar way, the word that we're hearing from Jesus this morning gets right to the heart of God's moral will and therefore right to the bullseye of the human problem. You see, pretty much everyone, I would guess everyone in this room and probably everyone you ever meet, religious or not, agrees that something is desperately wrong with human beings. We don't agree on what. We all know there's something very wrong with human beings. Look at what Hamas did in Israel. Look at the drastic uptick of signs of depression in our society, desperation, addiction, overdose, suicide. Look at the rash of fatherlessness, the confusion of our nation's youth, the blinding assault of basic common sense reality that comes from so many quarters. And then look closer to home at the disorder in your own life. Look at the way that fear and worry and anger can sometimes spin out of control in your heart. Look at the relational strife that you walk through and patterns of selfish indulgence that ensnare you. Yes, something is desperately wrong with human beings. There's no doubt about that. And what is Jesus doing in our text this morning? He's putting his finger right on the center of the problem. Our fallen condition is all about the love of our hearts. It's all about the love of our hearts. Our loves are disordered and backwards, growing in the wrong direction and causing an infection, kind of like, sorry for the image, an ingrown toenail. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> the shoe fits, doesn't it? Uh, often when we see these outward problems, our favored solutions focus on the outer man. We try to patch up the problem with externals, like moral improvement, religious duties. And these solutions are about as effective as treating a festering ingrown toenail with nail polish or fixing a fraying printer with a firmware update when the wires are broken. It's not going to do it. Our text represents the last of a sequence of four encounters that Jesus has where various people approach him with a question. This is during his Passion Week in Jerusalem. It's just days before he goes to the cross. Back in chapter 11, verse 27, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders challenged him. This is the first encounter. They said, by what authority do you do these things, the things you're doing here? Then in 1213, we had a second group, some Pharisees and Herodians. They tried to play a political game. They tried to trap him with a controversial question about paying taxes to Caesar. Then thirdly, in chapter 12, verse 18, the Sadducees challenged him regarding the resurrection. That was a theological challenge. And each time he's fended off their attacks with superior wisdom while teaching the way of God and the way of God's kingdom with clarity and power. And now we have the fourth and final encounter. And it's, 
initiated by one of the scribes. We, we hear about in verse 28, one of the scribes. This is a group of scholars and experts in the Old Testament law of Moses. And as we'll see in a moment, this encounter is different from all the others in some very important ways. But in this encounter, and this is the whole point of what we're going to see this morning, in this encounter, Jesus teaches that God's deepest concern is our heart's deepest loves. God's deepest concern is our heart's deepest loves. That's the point of the text. That'll be, Lord willing, the point of the sermon, so I intend. And this teaching that Jesus gives us about God's concern for our heart's loves is meant to do four things in our lives. And that's what we'll look through. We'll go through each of these four things that this teaching is supposed to do in our lives. And let me just warn you that the first one is by far the longest. This is going to be a top-heavy sermon. So as we're nearing the end of point one, don't be looking at your watch and thinking we'll be here until 2, uh, 2 p.m. Just to, just to give you that assurance. But what does this teaching do about God's concern with our heart's loves? The first thing this teaching does is it clarifies our moral priorities. It clarifies our moral priorities. So the scribe asks a question in verse 28. It occupies a good deal of rabbinic debate in Jesus' day. They discern that as you look through the law of God, certain matters seemed weightier than others. Certain matters seemed more fundamental and more powerful at explaining some of the others. While all of God's law was binding, many people could sense that, for instance, the prohibition against murder had a little bit more heft to it than the prohibition against mixing fabrics. And so in this vein, the scribe asks Jesus, can you tell me, can you put your finger on the one greatest of them all? And in answering, Jesus implies an approval of the question. The premise of the question is good. He doesn't correct the scribe for asking this question. He agrees there is a hierarchy in God's commands. And so what does he do? He goes straight for the top. He gives him a good answer. Of course, it's a good answer. Quoting from the so-called Shema of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. This is part of the chapter of Deuteronomy 6 that Matt read earlier. It's called the Shema because this is the Hebrew word for hear. It begins with this call, hear Israel. So it begins in our text, verse 29, with a doctrinal confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the cornerstone of Israel's religious life and their life in general. Their God, Yahweh, is the only God. Now, it's interesting that the guy asked for a commandment, and this is not a commandment. Uh, This is a a theological statement. This is a confession of faith. The commandment, Jesus could have just started with Deuteronomy 6.5, which is where he goes in verse 30 of our text, where he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So why does he start with the Lord your God, the Lord is one? It's because this connection is deep in the logic of the love commandment. And all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, this is a major feature in the book of Deuteronomy, that the singularity of God, the oneness of God, calls for the totality of our love. The oneness of God calls for the totality of our love. It demands the wholeness of our obligation to him. Think about it mathematically. Our whole self divided by one yields our whole self. There's one God, he gets all of us. That's kind of the the logic of saying there's one God, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now Jesus layers these different words 
heart, soul, mind, and strength, they all together describe the totality of our inner person. All these different capacities, our, our intellect, our volition, our will, and all of our ability, all of our capacities. And there's some nuanced distinction you can find between each of these words, but there's a ton of overlap. It's not really meant to be this list of kind of uh, mutually exclusive categories. It's this sort of this way of layering point after point to say emphatically, everything you have, all of your personality, all of your life, everything you are, it belongs to God. There's no corner of you that can be devoted to anything but God. He doesn't share. He doesn't uh, accept dividing up any part of us or compromising. Every fiber of our being at every moment is rightfully his. And that means not servile obedience, but zeal and affection and warmth and devotion and adoration from our hearts. That's verse 30. But then Jesus goes on beyond the scribe's request and he gives him bonus content. It says in verse 31, well, there's a second one. There's a second greatest commandment. It's like the first because it is like the first. It's a high standard and it's about our loves. He says in verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This one comes from another part of God's law, Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now you ask, who is my neighbor? Someone actually asked Jesus that very question. Who is my neighbor? You have to be careful quoting this commandment to your kids, your small kids, without explaining, because they'll naturally think of the people who live next door. Um, and the people who live next door do count, but it's broader than that. It's not just the neighbors in your neighborhood. Back in, Deuter uh, in Leviticus 19, neighbor, in the context of this verse, it's paralleled with terms of your brother and the sons of your people. In other words, in that, in that setting, the fellow Israelites, the sons of Jacob, who share in God's covenant. But in Luke's text that parallels our text this morning, in Luke chapter 10, this is where this question comes up. After the, the, where he gives the commandments, the person talking to Jesus says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to answer with the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. And the point of that, the point of the Good Samaritan is that your neighbor is not the person like you. Your neighbor is not the person that you like, but it's the person of every stripe that God puts in your path. That's your neighbor. Anywhere God has put anyone in moral proximity to you, relational proximity, the person you bump into, that's your neighbor. So that's what Jesus means when he says love your neighbor. And notice that the standard is to love our neighbor as ourself. Now this isn't exactly a command to love ourselves. It's more of a frank assumption that of course we should and do love ourselves. And it's not ungodly to love ourselves. We're made in God's image. We have immeasurable dignity as human beings. The problem, of course, with self-love is that it is very easily inflated beyond its proper boundaries at the expense of love of God and others. Now, some of us may be under the impression that we don't love ourselves enough. Maybe you think, I don't have enough self-esteem. I don't love myself enough. My big problem is that I, I self-loathing, I, I beat myself up over my failures, I'm constantly engaged in negative self-talk, things like this. Now, I'll acknowledge and agree that these are not healthy signs, and I'm not going to be able to untie all this issue of self-love and self-perception completely today. But for anyone who's tempted to think, I don't love myself at all, or I don't love myself enough, perhaps, perhaps there's a little bit more self-love hidden in our self-loathing than we appreciate. 
Perhaps we disappoint ourselves because we've overestimated our power, we've overestimated our importance, and we've set unrealistic expectations that we are not meeting. And so we respond with self-loathing. How do we know that we love ourselves? Well, we all have basic impulses towards self-protection, self-defense, and this one really gets me, self-vindication. Imagine that you have a conflict with someone else and they misrepresent you. They go around slandering you and they go around falsely blaming you for something that you haven't done. They are souring others against you and wrecking your reputation. Does anybody on planet Earth who, who understands that's happening to them not mind that? No, of course you mind that because you love yourself. So, so this is what Jesus is saying. Of course we love ourselves, but you should love your neighbor by that same standard. Now putting Jesus to great commandments together, we might ask, how are they both possible? If there's only one God and we love him with 100% of ourselves, how does that leave anything left to love either ourselves or our neighbor? Well, it's best to think of these first and second great commandments not as competitors, but as steps in a sequence. Don't think about two bins in front of you and you're deciding how to divide up a finite quantity, two eggs, uh, two baskets, and where do I put the eggs? Think of a fountain with two levels. And what happens? The water begins at the top and it fills the upper bowl of the fountain. And then what happens when it's full? It spills out into the lower level. It's a sequence. It's not a, it's not a, a parallel choice between do I love God with this much of me and then let, save some for my neighbor. Proper love of neighbor is an overflow of love for God. It's a particular extension of how we love God. It's the same singular motion of love that has a, a, a direct destination of God himself, but then it has an indirect extension to our neighbor. Uh, the medieval British commentator Bede writes about this. He says, neither of these two kinds of love is expressed with full maturity without the other. That's a good insight. Fully mature love of God and fully mature love of neighbor demand each other. Uh, he points to John 21. Remember when Jesus is resurrected and he's restoring Peter, who had denied him three times. What does he say? Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know, I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you see how interconnected love of God and love of neighbor are? And many have pointed out that these, these two great commandments summarize what we could call the two tables of the law. You may recall the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first four of them are vertical concerning our relationship with God. That we have no other gods, that we have no idols, that we don't make uh, vain representation of his name, and that we sanctify the Sabbath as he does. And then the final six of the great commandments are horizontal. They have to do with our relationships with one another. No adultery, I'm sorry, no murder, no adultery, no theft, no lying, no coveting. So you can see that, that, that love the Lord your God with all you are. That's the first table of the law. And then the second table is love your neighbor as yourself. This is a summary of all of God's moral will expressed in all his law and keeping them together is vital because there is a way of loving others that is godless and idolatrous there's a way of loving others that confuses the creature with the creator and puts a fellow human in the place of ultimate love that god alone deserves this is a sin that the bible calls the fear of man being so concerned with the opinions and the approval and the acceptance and the praise of anyone, any single person, any group of people, any man or woman, that they come to displace God himself as a great object of our affections. 
No, the order is important. It's God first, God with all we have and all we are. We love God for God's sake. And then, because he's worthy of us to love him uh, with all we have, we then love our neighbor for God's sake. Because he's worthy. So that's Jesus' answer. Now in verses 32 to 33, the scribe agrees with Jesus. And he paraphrases back uh, his version of the answer. He says, yeah, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there's no other besides him. He's just nodding, going, yeah, yeah, good, well said. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, mm, yeah, that's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying, yeah, Jesus, amen, well said. Now, that thing he adds is really interesting and, and surprising, potentially, that this twofold love of God and neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus, once again, verse 34, he is impressed. He agrees. He's like, yeah. They're all like agreeing with each other. Yeah, well said, well said. Uh, in verse 34, he's like, that's a wise answer. Why is love much greater than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices? Now, this phrase, these two items, of course, they represent this whole complex system of animal sacrifices in the law of God, especially Leviticus, regulated in great detail there. Now, at one level, the scribe is just being a good biblical scholar because God has made this very point several times in the Old Testament. Hosea 6.6, 6, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, these are good. These sacrifices are good. He himself has commanded them. But they're lighter in weight than rightly ordered love. That's the point God's making. He's saying, I don't want this, I want this. What he's saying is, I don't want this without this because this is heavy. The love is heavy. The, the sacrifices are much lighter. They're downstream. The love of our hearts is more important, much more important to God than external ceremony and religious performance. In fact, there's an interesting verbal echo between the Greek word that's translated whole burnt offerings and the seven repetitions of all repeated in verses 30 and 33. When Jesus says it four times, the scribe says it three times, all, 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 heart, soul, mind, strength. This word, whole burnt offering, starts with the same Greek word, all. Because the whole burnt offering is the distinct one that Israel had where they were to burn the whole animal to God. Most sacrifices, you may not know this, most of the animals, they would give a part to God, and then the priests would eat a part, and then the worshipers would eat a part of it. No, the whole burnt offering was different. The whole thing was for God. It all got burned up. And it's a symbol of a life entirely devoted to God. It's a symbol of complete consecration to the Lord. And that's basically what he's saying is that symbol of the whole burnt offering, it all belongs to God, is supposed to be a picture of the substance, which is our hearts really belonging fully to God. That's why, again, the, 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 the symbol is less important than the reality, that we love God with everything we have. And the prophets, like in Isaiah 1, this is a point that's made is, if you try to bring God the external ceremony without a heart of love, it is hateful to God. It is insulting and dishonoring to God. He says, I don't want your sacrifices if you don't also bring me your hearts. But isn't it so tempting to substitute external sacrifice for internal heart devotion? Isn't it tempting to offer to God superficial obedience even though our hearts really want something else? in the hope that it'll satisfy him? 
And isn't it tempting sometimes to measure our spiritual and moral condition by these externals, by the performance of very concrete external things? And sometimes we slip into this discourse as Christians. How have you been doing spiritually? Well, I'm reading my Bible and praying regularly, so I guess things are okay. Now, that's not an irrelevant category to consider, but it's also not the heart of the issue. Do you see how that could subtly become this very thing of, well, at least I'm doing the right external things. The real question is, and this could be an indicator of our love, but the real question is, how is your love for God? How is your love for others? So Jesus' teaching clarifies our moral priorities. The one God deserves all of our hearts, all of our loves, and the second is that we love others for God's sake. And this whole thing prioritizes the internal aspect of our heart's loves over external sacrifices and performance. So that's why I said it clarifies, it brings moral clarity. That's the first thing that Jesus' teaching does. What's the second thing that his teaching does? The second thing his teaching does is it condemns all for failing this standard. It condemns all for failing this standard. In many areas of life, subjecting ourselves to a high standard can bring a great deal of clarity to our self-assessment. I was talking with Jeff Presnell recently about the youth football team he's coaching. And last year, the team had great success in their league. They went on a deep playoff run all the way to the championship game. And this year, he said they're closer to about a 500 record, winning and losing in, in roughly equal proportion. Why? It's not because they got worse. It's because they moved up to a higher division, and they're playing better opponents. And this can happen. A higher standard brings clearer self-assessment. You think you're good at one level, but then you move up to the next level, and it exposes all these new weaknesses that you couldn't perceive before. It works this way in any system that's kind of stratified and organized by levels of difficulty. Think of academics. You think you're a good student until the next year when you get to the next grade, and it gets out much harder, or even maybe the, the next school. You get into the next level of school, and suddenly it's like a, a different standard, a different bar, and it may expose new weaknesses. And so it is with Jesus' high standard of the love commands. It's very easy for us in our hearts to domesticate God's commands. To gerrymander them, so to speak. To fit into the shape of what we ourselves can do. Uh, to say, again, like, the, thou shalt not murder. Like, well, I haven't murdered anybody. And like, I'm good, right? Like, like, you could read the law that way and feel pretty good about yourself. It's tempting for us to do that. And to distort the law of God into a standard that we can meet or we can tell ourselves we're meeting. This is what that externalism does. We talked about focusing on outward religious performance rather than the heart. It's pretty easy to keep the externals going when the heart is, has, has left the building. But Jesus' words cut right past all that. He's telling us, you assess your spiritual condition at the heart level. How are you doing with God at this level in your loves? Someday in the future when Jesus returns and he raises the dead and he brings all to his bar of judgment, what will the central question be? Of, cor of course our works will count as evidence. And of course the outer works reveal the heart. But his judgment will cut through all the noise and it will lay bare this one central question. What did his heart love? Did she devote herself to, all of herself to God her creator or did she siphon off affection to herself, other creatures in his place. 
That's, that's the basis. That's a real question morally that God's interested in. And that is a scary thought. Because who among us has yielded to God the entirety of our, of our affection, undiluted and undivided for even a brief moment of our lives, let alone perfectly and constantly from start to finish? I have heard Christians citing these two love commands as sort of the summary and the heart of Christianity. Like, what's Christianity all about? Oh, yeah, love God, love neighbor. Yikes. If that's the case, we are all done for. It's that, that's basically Christianity in a nutshell. Love God, love neighbor. That's really bad. Because if you read these commands and come away feeling good about yourself, I'm going to say what Terry said in Equipping Hour. Read it again. If you come away feeling good about yourself, stop. Think for maybe three to five minutes. Have some self-awareness. Read again. And you, we all fall flat on our face before these words. And these are good and beautiful and holy pillars of God's moral teaching. But they devastate us. The bar is very high. We'll never receive God's kingdom through the gateway of God's law. And this is what Paul teaches in Romans 5 and 7. He says in, in Romans 5.20, he's talking about how God revealed the law to Israel. And it didn't help us get any closer to him. Rather, it exposed the true nature of our sin. He says in, in Romans 5.20, the law came in to increase the trespass. The law just made it clearer how sinful our sin really was. And he later on says in Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, about his own experience. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, and you could think of this love commandment as what maybe a concrete law he's talking about. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You can say the same thing about this love command. I didn't even know how loveless toward God I was until this law came in into the picture and said, you shall love the Lord your God with everything. And sin, it basically inflamed sin. And I was like, I don't love God very much at all. That's what the law does. The law, like nothing else, can deliver this condemning verdict. And nothing like this great commandment, the real heart, the twofold law of love can do that, can deliver us to this point of condemnation. How much more clearly could God prove the sinfulness of our hearts and that we don't measure up to his justice? So we've seen the two things so far that Jesus' teaching does. It clarifies moral priorities. Secondly, it condemns. The third thing that it does is it conducts us to the low gate of childlike faith. It conducts us to the low gate of childlike faith. I'm sticking with the C's here. Think about this word conduct. Think about orchestral music. I always have to take a second to remind myself to clarify these two roles, the composer and the conductor. Okay, who, which one is who? They're both in charge in a sense, but in different ways. The composer writes the music. And the conductor is the one standing in front of the orchestra, directing and leading them through the performance, the conductor. I think of like a train conductor. So he's up there, he or she up there leading the orchestra. So, so the composer creates, the conductor leads. And that's what I mean here by conduct. This teaching about the heart directs us. It leads us. What we've seen is that it seals off any, any idea of law keeping as the means of entering God's kingdom. And it points us to a different doorway. And in order to see this, let's return to our text in this scribe. He's endorsed Jesus' answer in verses 32 and 33. Jesus himself, in verse 34, gives a positive assessment. says, that's a wise answer. 
What's wild is that all throughout Mark, the scribes have been people who are opposed to Jesus. And that will continue all the way to the cross. They're among the people that are uh, seeking his death. This is the one positive reference, of the one good scribe you meet in the Gospel of Mark. In, this midst, in the midst of this parade of challenges against Jesus, this guy comes in a very different manner. You saw back in verse 28 how he approached Jesus. He heard Jesus arguing with other opponents, and he saw that Jesus answered well. And that's the basis for him asking his question. It's like his mind is going, wow, Jesus really gives good answers. Let me ask him my question, see if I can get a good answer to my question. So he's asking in humility. He's asking with genuineness. And likewise, after hearing Jesus answer in our text, he, he says, yeah, you're right. He, he continues to be supportive. And Jesus sees this guy. He sees this scribe is different. And very importantly, in verse 34, he delivers an unsolicited report about the spiritual condition of this man based on how he responds to Jesus' teaching. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean, that enigmatic statement? You are not far from the kingdom of God. Well, first of all, let's explore why he is close to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over people by means of his king, his Messiah. And this is the the main theme of Jesus' ministry and preaching. We hear about that at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1. And throughout Mark, we've we've seen people struggling and maybe choking on the very tough nut. What does it mean to enter the kingdom? Entry requirements turn the world's thinking on its head. It's not the mighty, it's not the wise, it's not the proud who have the advantage in receiving God's kingdom. It is the lowly, those who are the true followers of this Jesus who is himself a suffering servant king. That's been a major theme in Mark up to this point. So what does Jesus see in this scribe? Well, he sees a humble man, a man who's willing to listen and and trying to learn. That must be a refreshing break from the pattern and Jesus interacts with these people and he sees a man who is agreeing and clear on the high standard of God's law it's it's the heart it's all of our love belongs to God this man agrees with that now unlike some others who have interacted with Jesus this man is not very likely to think that he is self-sufficient and not very likely to think that he in himself is righteous and able to keep the law Other guys, those who externalize morality and focus on peripheral things and cut their hearts off from the Lord, you look at a person like that and you say, yeah, you you probably think you're okay. This guy who says, yeah, it's all about the heart and God deserves all of it, Jesus says, good. You're very close to realizing the real way in. This scribe sees it's all about the heart. It's all about the dearest objects of our love. And he's very close to being able to see that he will never measure up. I think it's instructive to compare this man with the rich young man that Jesus encountered back in chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. There's a lot of similarities. In both cases, we have someone who is very close to the kingdom, but not quite inside. These are the only two texts in Mark that use this word that's translated love, interestingly. And uh, they both involve teaching, Jesus teaching about the requirements of God's law. You recall this rich young man who says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus quotes some of the Ten Commandments, and the man says, yeah, I got that. Uh, Jesus says, okay, one thing you lack, give up all you have and come follow me. And he goes away sorrowful. He says, no, because he he has many things. Back then in in chapter 10, the big tragedy is this man would not give up his self-sufficiency. He would not give up his beloved possessions in order to embrace the childlike faith that Jesus had commended in the previous text. Chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. 
Those are supposed to be read together. He had just said, back in chapter 10, verses, verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Remember, it's that humble and needy faith that says, I have nothing, I'll just receive with simplicity, like a child. So that's the only way to receive God's kingdom, trusting Jesus, the king. So the immediate illustration, counter illustration of that was the rich young man who said, well, can I, I, I don't want to humble myself that way. I want to hold on to my stuff and my self-sufficiency. He didn't make it. He didn't make it through the gate. And in a similar way, if the great love commandment seals off any idea that we could keep God's law to qualify for God's kingdom, where does this law conduct? Where does it lead us to find life? It, it, it leads us back to that childlike faith that receives all from Jesus the one who came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. This parallel between the rich young man and our scribe also explains why the scribe is not in the kingdom yet. He's close because he sees how impossibly high the bar is, but what he still seems to lack is the trust that would cast himself entirely in the arms of Jesus. I hope he got there eventually. We don't know any more about this guy. It would be great to find him in heaven and to see that he did, in fact, places trust in Jesus. You can see things are rumbling around in his heart and Jesus is kind of going like, you're on the right track. May today's teaching on the heart drive all of us to this, this wholehearted conclusion that we will never love God purely and fully and consistently enough to deserve being with him. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill psalm 15 1 asks and the answer is he who walks blamelessly and does what is right or in the terms of our text we could say he who loves blamelessly god and then fellow man it's only in christ who has done this for us that we have safety and security in the unquenchable goodness of eternal fellowship with god so we've seen Jesus' teaching clarify, we've seen it condemn, and we've seen it conduct, leading us to the true way of life, the true way of receiving his kingdom by faith. Fourthly and finally, what does it do? It composes a rich life of Christ-likeness. It composes a rich life of Christ-likeness. Return to the orchestral, we have a conductor, he leads a performance. What does a composer do? He's the creator. He's the guy who's writing the music beforehand that they're playing. This is what I mean here. Jesus teaching about God wanting the love of our hearts teaches us to follow him, teaches us who follow him, what an obedient Christian life looks like. This is what God's law is supposed to do in us. First, it's supposed to demonstrate how utterly righteous God is and how utterly unrighteous we are. And then condemn us so that we uh, go to Christ to receive his grace by faith. And then standing in grace, God's law has an instructive function. It instructs us in obedience as his grace keeps working in us. And when it comes to how we live as Christ's people, the love commandments provide a deep well from which to draw innumerable implications and applications. I almost feel like I have to preach another sermon just exploring some of that. Not going to do that. Um, at least not today. <laughs> uh, one thing I find amazing about Paul in his, his letters, two of his, the two books where he's most powerfully stressing the gratuity, the freeness of salvation through faith alone. These two books where he's most powerfully stressing this are Romans and Galatians. In both of those books, he pivots to moral instruction by citing the love command of the law. In, in Galatians 5, 14, 13 and 14, he says, 
For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It is incredible that Paul argues this way. It's like he's saying, I cannot emphasize strongly enough that we are set right by God, with God, by grace, through faith, not by our keeping of the law. Right then, how should we live? By keeping the law. (laughs) Which is summed up in this word, to love our neighbor. But there is an instructive element of this law for those of us who are justified by faith in Christ. And the entire Christian life flows from rightly ordered loves. Again, first to God, then to our fellow man. So to get very practical, when you're considering sinning, when you're tempted to sin, ask yourself a set of questions. First thing, what will this do to my relationship with God? Do I want my vision of his glory and my enjoyment of his presence clouded with this impurity? That the church father Basel points out that, that competing sinful loves, lust and greed and pride, things that are competing for our hearts, competing against God, they blind our eyes from seeing and loving God as we should. I think of Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. When we uh, disperse our love to these false gods, it blinds us to God. And it keeps us from seeing and loving him as we should. Then we ask, after asking about God, we ask, whom would I be hurting? Who are the people around me that would be negatively affected by my sin? My family, how would it affect them? How would it affect my church? How would it affect the watching world that knows I'm a Christian? And it's not just the negative. It's not just uh, to keep us from doing bad things. It's positive. Haven't we all experienced this truth that the more closely we're communing with the Lord, And the more we're clearly seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ, and the more that we're loving him in response, that holiness becomes a kind of home base we just don't want to give up. We love that place where we can see God and be like him. It's like we're being warmed by a blazing campfire on a cold night. You're just going, I don't want to leave. It's really good here. To know and to love God and say this place of holiness and obedience, I love it here. Why would I turn away? It's so good here. It's so desirable here. My heart couldn't, couldn't treasure anything else. Why would I go off into the cold? Much more could be said about that. But there we have, at least uh, at a broad level this morning, Jesus has taught us that God's deepest concern is our heart's deepest loves. There is, in fact, something deeply wrong with human beings. All of us collectively, each of us individually, And this is it. Our hearts have turned upon themselves. They've turned backwards away from God, away from our fellow man. And we've seen how Jesus' teaching on our loves hits us in a few different ways. First, we saw that it's clarifying news because it directs our attention to where God's attention is on our hearts and our loves. Secondly, we saw that it's condemning news because it, it shows us just how far we've fallen from God from giving the creator his due. Thirdly, it's news that conducts us, it leads us into God's kingdom by another way, not law-keeping, but childlike faith in the servant who gave himself up for sinners. And fourth and finally, we saw that it's news that teaches us how to compose a rich variety of virtue and good works as we live the Christian life in God's grace. I pray that wherever this teaching from Jesus finds you this morning, it it sweeps you up 
I hope this, it does this for all of us. It sweeps us up and it carries us onto this destination where we're convicted of sin, we're joined to Christ in humble faith, and we're zealously pursuing a life of love to God and neighbor. Let's pray. God, we praise you for the holiness and righteousness of your commands. They reflect your own eternal character. And you are worthy. You're the creator and you're the fountain of life and all good. You are worthy of our affection. It is utterly wicked and backward to turn any of ourselves away from you to somewhere else. We acknowledge that. Yet we know that our hearts are so quick to do that. We confess that sin and we once again look to the cross and we marvel at the price that Jesus paid and the utter necessity that we had that we needed to be rescued. We needed to be brought into your kingdom another way and he has made that way. I pray that every soul in the hearing of your word this morning would be trusting in Jesus, would look to him on the cross, would trust the one who died and was raised again and who gives life and forgiveness. And that all of us who do trust Jesus would be uh, refreshed and motivated and empowered once again to be about the things of loving you and loving those that you've called us to love. We pray that you'd search our hearts and that you'd cleanse us, that you'd cut away and prune whatever false love and whatever deficiency of love you find in our hearts so that we would, uh, would, would flow forth in, in fruitful love that you've called us to. And we know there's no greater joy. So work in our lives through this word in all the ways you see fit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.